Um, just one or two verses, I think, we'll read an introduction, and then we'll go into what we're talking about. So first of all, 1 Kings chapter 17, please. So 1 Kings chapter 17, we've quoted this verse in part, so it's good to read it again, or to read it properly. First Kings 17, story of Elijah, and we have his example, as we know, brought before us in the New Testament as an example of someone who exhibited the power of prayer. And that, of course, is our topic now, having looked at the purpose of prayer, having worked together on the practice of prayer, we're now concluding our day with a look at the power of prayer. And Elijah will be one of our tutors under God. So 1 Kings 17 and verse 1 says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So, Elijah's word from the Lord about the stopping and starting of the rains. Now let's come to chapter 18, please. Over to the next chapter, 1 Kings 18, and from verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Well-known story, but let's uh, read this section together. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Today, let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord... He is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud, as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind. And there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. We'll take a a few more verses in a moment, but that'll suffice for now. This wonderful story that shows us the power of prayer when it's prayed at the word of the Lord, following his precept, and the people saw the power that was there in the prayer of Elijah. Now, there have been examples throughout history, and 
one from my, my native land of Scotland, I'll bring before you. The Scottish reformer John Knox was someone who had a reputation for having powerful prayers. And during the time of the Roman Catholic Queen, Mary Queen of Scots, it is said that she said, I fear the prayers of one man, John Knox, more than all the armies of Europe. Well, testimony to the, the godly life and the prayer power of the man John Knox. So, James says in the Bible about prayer that we don't have because we don't ask. So we should be a praying people. We should be asking God. And we've been looking at things this afternoon and taking our cues from the Word of God, from the prayers of the Apostle Paul, to inform us in what we should be asking God for and trying to challenge us if we've got the balance correct in the profile of the things that we ask God for in our private prayers and in our church prayers. And it's James who goes on to say that the prayer of a righteous man avails much in its working, or in different versions, has great power in its working, or accomplishes much. It's the prayer of a righteous man. So there's one condition upon prayer, and certainly upon powerful, effective prayer. There has to be the quality of righteousness expressed in the life of the prayer. I want us to think about that for a moment. Um, I don't know if many people here are into basketball uh, or know um, past greats in the world of basketball, but suppose you were playing a game that was basketball manager and you had to put together your dream team. So you had to fill those five positions. What players would you come up with? Well, I'm aware of some of these names, although I don't know a great deal about basketball other than the obvious of how it's played. But some of the names that might come forward would be Michael Jordan. And it might be Magic Johnson. It might be Shaquille O'Neal. Could be LeBron James. And an older timer, Wilt Chamberlain. And some people might have as a substitute Oscar Robertson. So you can come up with the greats in that particular field of sport. And you say, well, if I had to pick a team and a lot was riding on the outcome of this particular match, well, I'd want these guys to be in my team and playing on my side. Well, that's just an analogy. But suppose you wanted to enlist people as your prayer partners, people to pray for you. Does it make a difference who you enlist to be your prayer partners? Well, in a sense it does. Um, it's the prayer of a righteous person that avails much in its working. And so Elijah has been held up to us in Scripture as an example. Let me share another couple of verses with you at this point. Would you like to turn to Ezekiel 14? And verse 14. The Lord seems to endorse in Scripture that there are people whose prayers he particularly respected. Ezekiel 14 and verse 14, speaking about the poor spiritual state of the people of God at that time, he says, even though these three men, Noah, 
Daniel and Job were in its midst. By their own righteousness, they could only deliver themselves, says the Lord God. Then if you come back with me to Jeremiah chapter 15, just back a couple of books. Jeremiah 15, a similar kind of statement. That gives some credibility to this idea of a selection process that we've been highlighting. Jeremiah 15.1 Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. So here's a good team. If we wanted to enlist people to pray for us down through the ages... Those are the names that the Lord brings before his people. Even if these named persons, with all the righteousness of their lives, were to pray for this my people, they would only deliver themselves by their righteousness and not the people of God. And of course, we could put our substitute in as Elijah, since he's the one that James features in the New Testament, the power of prayer in his life. So... When we're thinking about the power of prayer, it is important to bear in mind this condition of righteousness. Remember in Ephesians 6, where we were reading about uh, prayer, one of the prayers of Paul is preceded by the, the armor of God, and one of those things, those items, would be the breastplate of righteousness. We have to make sure we have the breastplate of righteousness. And that, of course, we understand is not speaking about the imputed righteousness that is ours when we come to faith in Christ and the Lord takes our sin and we receive his righteousness and what Martin Luther called the great exchange. But the breastplate of righteousness is to do with our day-to-day living. It's a practical righteousness. It's when you and I learn by God's grace to make right decisions. We've got choices. Every day we've got choices. A right choice and a wrong choice. The right word to speak, the wrong word to speak. The right thought, the wrong thought. And the breastplate of righteousness is that part of the armory that God provides that we live a life of practical righteousness. And those who exhibit righteousness are those whose prayers are powerful. Other helps to powerful prayer as we encourage this is to be an exhortation to encourage one another to power in our lives of prayer read about Jacob um, in Genesis of course but there's a, a lovely little commentary on Jacob in the book of Hosea and I'm just picking up and I'll just quote this little part for you so you don't need to look it up but just take a, a note of the reference In fact, the same applies for this presentation as the earlier one, that all the slides will be made available in PDF form for you to print out, so you don't need to scribble furiously to keep up with me. So, here's a commentary on the life of Jacob, and it says, In his manhood, he had power with God. And surely the time takes us back to Genesis 32, and Jacob's experience down in the chasm of the Jabbok. And... A man comes and wrestles with Jacob. And this wrestler is clearly the Lord who comes down in human form to wrestle with with Jacob, to pick a fight with Jacob. Jacob can do nothing else. If somebody starts wrestling with you, you've got to defend yourself. So 
Jacob wrestles back. And you know how, after a while, the angel of the Lord says, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And sometimes that's presented to us as a, a model for tenacity in prayer. And in some senses it is. But it wasn't by wrestling that Jacob prevailed. Remember how the angel of the Lord put forth his hand and, and touched Jacob in the hollow of his thigh. And, and Jacob then had a dead leg and it's hard to wrestle with a dead leg. He just hung on to his opponent. I'll not let you go until you bless me. So he had power with God. He prevailed, but not by his might, not by his strength, but by clinging to the mighty one. And isn't that the picture? It's a picture of dependency here. Jacob, that was the whole point of this wrestling match. Jacob had to learn dependency upon God. He had been striving all his life with men and with God, trying to grab for himself the blessing that God just wanted to give him graciously. So Jacob had to learn the lesson. It's about dependence. It's about clinging, holding on in faith, and that way prevailing for the blessing. So Jacob teaches us dependence in that little cameo that we have in Genesis 32. What else? We've spoken already in our Q&A session about a sense of burden. And in fact, we instance Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1 and 1 through to 2 and 1. Check out the Hebrew months. A three-month period. And we try to define burden as being, yes, a sense of something to pray about. But it's differentiated from our own whimsical thoughts, which can float in one day and float out the next. But how do we know the Lord's hand is in this? And this is a real prayer burden from God. I suggest two things. One, that it becomes sustained. Day after day, it's a waking thought. This is what I need to pray about. And secondly, it intensifies rather than diminishes. And that was certainly true of Nehemiah until he concluded that he was the answer to his own prayer, that God was preparing his heart with a personal burden of responsibility to fulfill the vision that he had been given. James 5 and 17 speaks about praying until you pray. Don't know how it's translated in your version, but if you look in the margin of mine, it says, he prayed with prayer. <laughs> you think, well, isn't that obvious? You pray with prayer. What else do you pray with? But he prayed with prayer. It's a, he, it's a Greek intensive form. And it's very similar to the Hebrew way of showing intensity. You know how when we're doing that, if we're writing something, and if I'm showing something on the screen, I might embolden words. And you say, ah, oh, that's what he's wanting to emphasise because he's putting it in bold. Well, they didn't have that in, in Old Testament times. So what they did was they repeated. They used repetition. And so when you find, for example, Isaiah 26 in verse 3, a well-known poster verse, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you. In the Hebrew, it's not such a thing as perfect peace. It's peace, peace. It's a repetition of the word to show emphasis in the Hebrew. And so you translate it as profound peace or perfect peace. Peace, peace. It's a similar thing here. He prayed with prayer. The Greek is expressing intensity in the same way through repetition. I don't know if you find the experience, but sometimes I'm praying and 
I'm finding it's maybe a bit of a struggle. Words don't come easily. And you're just not getting into the flow. And you, you keep on praying until suddenly it begins to flow. Someone has said, pray until you pray. Struggle through that cold, difficult phase until you get the release and you pray. And you become fluent in that prayer. Pray until you pray. He prayed with prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly and intensively. We are to be habitual in prayer. Nehemiah fired up that very quick prayer, didn't he? When the king said, why are you looking sad in my presence, Nehemiah? That was a capital offence, of course, by the way, we realise. And Nehemiah, you can sense the panic. And he fires up a prayer to heaven. Lord, help me. And then he makes his request of the king and it's granted. But that prayer, very brief emergency prayer as it was, was on the basis of a life of habitual prayer. God will respect a, a quick prayer when we have to pray a quick prayer. And it can be anywhere at any time in any circumstance. But it will be powerful on the basis of a, a life of habitual prayer. There were some early African Christians and they learned the practice of private prayer and they used to disappear into the bush for their prayers. So you had all these tracks going off in different directions as the individual African Christians went into the bush, found a little quiet spot and they knelt and they prayed. And after a while, of course, as with all of us, human nature being what it is, some of them would backslide a little bit from that daily discipline and devotion to prayer Another of the African Christians would come up to them and say, Brother, the grass is growing on your track. It wasn't worn out as before. You're not traversing that route as commonly as you did previously. You're not as habitual in prayer. It's good when we've got people that hold us accountable. Prayer is to be habitual, to be powerful. Daniel is one of the good examples in Scripture. I love the example of Daniel as a man of prayer. And Daniel was someone whose prayers engaged with the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. We know that's what our prayers engage with. Ephesians chapter 6, back there again. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Jacob, the wrestler, we are wrestling against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. It's a real thing. That's why prayer is not easy. You say, I, I don't know what's wrong with me as a Christian. I'm struggling to pray. I don't find it easy. It isn't easy. It's a battle. Prayer is warfare. That's what Ephesians 6 says. The devil wants to keep us off our knees. He wants to do anything he can to distract and deflect us from the serious business of prayer. And so Daniel is someone who shows us. And the Lord pulls back the curtain somewhat and reveals to us what was happening in the spiritual realms while Daniel prayed. And if you connect later the time point in Daniel 9 verse 1 with the time point in Daniel 11 verse 1, you'll find the time of Daniel reading his Bible, discovering the period of captivity of 70 years was coming to an end, and launching from his Bible study into fervent, passionate prayer. Lord, I can see it's time you're going to restore the captivity of your people. And he was pleading for it in harmony with the will of God, because he was reading out the word of God, and asking God to stand by his word. God must answer a prayer like that. That's not manipulating God. 
That's just holding God to his word. This is what you said, Lord. You never break your word. And so Daniel's praying that prayer. And we see from Daniel 11, verse 1, that was a time when there was a, a particular movement in the spiritual forces, a shift in the balance of power in the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And the whole thing was projected back down to earth. And that was the time when Darius the Mede came to the kingdom. A change of world empire because of a shift in the balance of power between angelic forces that were in conflict. And it's all because this man is praying remotely in his chamber three times a day. And that brought about the realisation of God's great desire to have again a house on earth for his praying people. There's Daniel. He was never in the house of God. But remotely, his prayer advanced the kingdom of God in an amazing way. And it was instrumental in God having a functioning house and a priesthood again on earth in his people Israel. The power of one man in his inner chamber praying to the God of heaven. Remember what it says of Joshua? Joshua's long day. When he prayed that God would stop the sun so the day would be long enough to give them complete victory over their enemies. That was the day when God listened to the voice of a man. That's what happens when we pray. The great God of heaven, the creator of the universe, listens to your voice and mine. That's amazing grace. What a privilege to come before God in prayer. So we pray. We pray persistently. David mentioned that in the practical I'm citing Luke 18 here, but it's the same point of praying persistently with the correct motives. Psalm 66 and verse 18, Samus says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, you will not hear my prayer. So there's that righteousness again, that holiness of living, that confession of sin, that keeping short accounts with God for our prayers to be powerful and effective. We are to pray in faith. Remember that the cursed fig tree and the Lord took that as a lesson to his disciples. Pray in faith. We are to pray to our Heavenly Father. It's on the basis of relationship. All our prayers are on that basis as we come privately before God. As children to our Father. And the Lord said, further in Luke 11, you know, what, what father doesn't give good gifts to his children? A child doesn't ask for a fish and his father gives him a scorpion. He gives good gifts because of the familial relationship, we're coming to our Heavenly Father for good and necessary priorities, informed by the Word of God as we've been emphasizing today, picking up our themes from Scripture and how God will delight to answer those prayers. We pray with a grateful heart and we, we pray in holiness. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that he, he wished for all men to pray lifting up holy hands, well, the scripture does speak about people lifting up their hands in prayer. Nothing against that. But it's the emphasis on holiness. It's the holiness that's indispensable. Whatever our posture. Fitting for the occasion. But we pray with holiness. And with correct relationships. I need to forgive my brother before I can ask God for his forgiveness. And know that forgiveness from the Lord. So there are many conditions for prayer. Prayer is not a blank check. And when we read one verse in scripture where the Lord's saying, ask anything in my name and I will give it you, we have to read that in the surrounding context of New Testament revelation and wider 
Bible-wide revelation of the conditions that the Lord has placed on effective, powerful praying. These things are well known to us, I'm sure, so it's just a revision there. So let's get back to Elijah. Let's learn a handful of lessons from the prayer of Elijah that we read about in 1 Kings 18. Elijah prayed believingly. So I want to emphasise the faith. He said, there is the sound of heavy rain. Reading it from the NASB as I did earlier, there is the roar of heavy rain. What did Elijah hear? Others didn't seem to hear thunder. So I don't know if he did hear thunder. One commentator has suggested it was the sound of God's promise ringing in his ear. That may be so. Elijah had had a word from the Lord and that word reverberated in his heart and mind and that's what gave him the passion and the intensity and the certainty in the praying that he prayed. He knew that rain was coming. He had heard the sound of a mighty rain. So here's the secret of powerful praying. It's believing in the answer beforehand. Not one of our own imagining, but something that's there in Scripture. The Bible speaks about praying in the Spirit. We read about that in Romans chapter 8. You'll read about it in Jude 20. Praying in the Spirit. I believe Romans 8 gives us an explanation of what praying in the Spirit means. It's the mechanism. We, we're so weak about praying, we often don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit helps our weakness. And so praying in the Spirit. And he helps us by directing our attention so many times, doesn't he, to God's Word. And I believe praying in the Word is very helpful, if not vital for us also. And really that's what our exercise today, shadowing Paul's prayers and all the prayers in the New Testament, were about. Praying in the Word. Turning Scripture into prayer is powerful. How often do we do that in our private prayers and in our church prayers? We did a bit of it in our prayer time together, and it was lovely. To turn the words of Scripture into prayer. It's not just to be parroting it, of course. Entering into it, understanding its context, and saying, Wow, what Paul wanted for the Ephesians is what I want for my church. And so we pray through the prayers of Scripture. And that's praying in faith, believing, because we're praying the Word of God, asking God according to His Word. So if I knew the Word of God as well as Elijah did, how much more powerful my prayers would be. So Elijah prayed believingly. He heard the sound, at least of the Word of God, and he didn't let it go, and he prayed on that basis. But he also prayed humbly. Down to the next verse, verse 42. He prayed humbly. Remember his posture? He climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and he bent down to the ground and he put his face between his knees. He was not like those people the Lord criticised who stood at the street corners and made sure they had a big audience before they prayed audibly. They've had their reward, the Lord says. But here's the man the Lord rewards. The man who goes up alone on top of a mountain, just a servant nearby, and bows down, prostrates himself before Almighty God. See, Elijah was bold before the people. He could confront Ahab, just like John Knox could confront Mary, Queen of Scots. He could confront Ahab. But he was humble in the presence of God. Bold before people, but humble before God. And yet there was a kind of boldness 
as we're encouraged to come with boldness before God, not an inappropriate boldness, not undue familiarity, but the reverent, adoring heart of the child of God coming before Almighty God, but bold in the spirit and bold in the word coming into God's presence in a spirit of humility. There's nothing else that becomes us in God's presence. He is great and we are small and we come in spirit of confession humbly before him. So we learn from the posture of the prophet here in 1 Kings 18. Now, he didn't only pray believingly, he didn't only pray humbly, but he prayed persistently. We've seen that from the New Testament in Luke 11 and Luke 18, but here it's from Elijah in 1 Kings 18. Go look toward the sea, he said to his servant. And he went and looked. There's nothing there, he said, and he comes back. And seven times he sent his servant back again. Go check again, will you? Go and have another look. Elijah had heard the sound of the deluge. He had the word of God reverberating in his heart and mind. But his servant saw nothing. But Elijah was convinced that prayer would be answered. Because it was in according to God's word, in harmony with his will. So he sent the servant back again and again. Elijah had God's word of promise. And he kept on in believing prayer, even when it looked as if he was wasting his time. Not to mention, it looked as if he was making a fool of his servant. Elijah prayed persistently. He didn't give up. He also prayed definitely. He prayed for rain, for sure. Do we pray to hit the target, or is it a hit-and-miss exercise? There is a verse, I've not been able to establish this to my satisfaction, but one commentator says on Psalm 5, David setting his prayer in order, it's an expression that's used of setting an arrow upon a bow. And he was making the point that he was using one arrow at a time. So it's a focused prayer, targeted prayer, praying definitely for something, not generally without anything specified. So, practically speaking, there is great benefit in the use of a prayer list, as we've been exhorted to use, whether digitally or the old pen and paper method, but using a prayer list, so that we make sure we pray definitely. We're not just vague, and we're not just speaking in broad generalities, because a general prayer is generally useless. God wants us to put an arrow in our bow, and order our prayer, and hit the target, and pray, like Elijah, definitely. And finally, he prayed successfully, verses 44 and 45. The seventh time, the servant came back and reported to Elijah, I see a cloud, but it's only the size of a man's hand, as if he was going to dismiss it, perhaps. But Elijah wouldn't dismiss it. Ah, he says, that's the answer to our prayer. He grabbed hold of the answer. Do we sometimes miss the connection, the relationship between the answer that comes, that God sends, and the prayer that we've been making? When we've been praying individually or as a church for some time about a particular matter, and the Lord answers that prayer, do we remember to come back and thank him? It was one out of the ten in the Lord's experience who came back to say thank you for the cleansing he had received. Let's remember to correlate answers with prayers. And that's where David mentioned if we are journaling, 
then we know when, which days we prayed about which things and a couple of weeks later we find something happened, we check back in the book, that's an answer to prayer. Praise God for that. Turn it into thanksgiving. And Paul often commenced his prayers with thanksgiving. We've noted that as one of the trends in his praying. So Elijah didn't hesitate. He didn't wait until the cloud got bigger. He knew that was the answer and he thanked God for it. Don't fail to notice the small cloud after you've prayed. Maybe it wasn't what you were looking for. Not quite the same form of answer that you'd anticipated, but it's an answer from God and you thank him for it and you've prayed successfully. I just want to mention uh, a couple of what I'm suggesting are misconceptions of what power in and through prayer looks like. Just mention it because we come across them and perhaps we might think we are missing out somehow because others would claim great results from these things, but I want to suggest they are misconceived. There are those who would pray like this, Lord, I, I cover my home and my land and my car and my finances with the blood of Jesus, your son. I cover it all with the blood. And they believe that pleading the blood is a way, in effect, to manipulate God. A way of praying that God is duty-bound to answer, that it's especially effective. We'll look at the scriptures that might be taken as a basis for that and see that they are taken from their context. So there's no magical formula, no mantra that we can encant that has special effect in itself. There are those who pray along the lines, in the name of Jesus Christ, I bind every evil spirit and bind every evil plan that's been made against me in this situation and so on. Um, but there again, we simply don't have the authority to bind demonic forces. That's not been granted to us. There were special times in the New Testament when the Lord was here and when he commissioned his disciples and they went out and had that power delegated from the Lord specifically to do that. But other times, even Michael the archangel contending with Satan didn't bring a railing rebuke against him. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. And can we go any further than that? Michael greater in power than we are. So it's not for us to do something on earth and then demand that God ratifies it in heaven because we have claimed it and spoken in terms of binding. So perhaps where these things come from in Scripture would be Scriptures such as we have in Revelation 12. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. But it wasn't by uh, intoning those words in their prayers. Of course, they overcame by the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our basis for any victory in life has got to be Calvary and the Lord and his giving himself for us. But it's not meaning that they chanted those words in any particular way to give them a special leverage with God through prayer. And we know that it's a, a misappropriation of entering the holy place by the blood of Jesus to link it in the way that has been linked there. We understand that to do with coming before God in worship as a collective experience in Hebrews. Then there's a couple of points in the Gospels in Matthew where the Lord does speak about binding, but 
It's about uh, the context of exorcism, the casting out of evil spirits under the Lord's ministry in Matthew 12, which he was being criticised for at that time by the Pharisees. And in Matthew 18, it's about church administration and carrying out church discipline. And it was picking up a, a, a phrase that was in use at the time by the rabbis that meant permitting or prohibiting. And so this was something that was carried out on earth in the area of church discipline. But the permitting or the prohibiting was done on earth having been already ratified in heaven. So it was doing on earth as it is done in heaven. It's that way around. And the context is not here about how to pray for special effect, but church discipline and about a special time of casting out of demons. So finally then, to conclude our talk and our exhortation about the power of prayer, maybe some examples of powerful prayer. I remember a couple of things to start with. We'll go wider, we don't want to remain parochial, but it's good that we can share with one another experiences that are personal or from people very close to us. Only for encouragement and strengthening. I remember listening to a woman speaking of her experience in serving the Lord in the company of our missionary brother, who's now at home with the Lord, Willie Stewart. And it was in the UK, I think, at that particular moment, and she accompanied Willie Stewart to the railway station to go together by train to wherever they were going to serve in gospel outreach together and perhaps preach the word. He would preach the word later. And she stood waiting near to where he was standing on the station platform. And a train rolled in, and Willie Stewart didn't move. He was still bowed. And the train went out. And she thought, that's curious, that train's going to the destination that I thought he said we were headed for. Another train comes in, and it too is left to exit from the, the station. And then she turns and she sees a, another person whom she recognised from the church meeting the previous night, rushing down the stairs, coming up to Willie Stewart, speaking a word in his ear, slipping him a, an envelope, and then he goes away again. So they continue standing there. And the next train comes in, just like the two previous trains, same destination shown in the front. And he turns to her and says, now it's time, let's go. And it dawned on her. He hadn't the money to pay for his train fare or her train fare. And he was praying to the Lord to supply that need in the advance of the gospel. And when he got the money, they went on the train. That's the power of a man of God living close to the Lord, bringing his needs before his heavenly Father and those needs being met and the work continuing. I remember a time when I was coming back from Belgium in uh, probably the early 90s and it was a time when there was some industrial disputes and the, the ships were not allowed to disembark. People couldn't disembark from the ships. So I got into Dover all right but my car was impounded, effectively, on the vessel. So waited for a couple of days, but the strike was going on. I couldn't get the car released. So I eventually walked off the ship and hired a car and came home in the hired car. And then 
Um, through Brian and Elsie Tugwell, I was able to arrange a lift back down to Dover with Don Dole, Elsie's father. And on that long journey back down, it was great just to sit in Don's company and listen to his storytelling. He's a tremendous storyteller. And he told me this story, absolutely true, of course, and it just emphasises the power of prayer. He said there was a time when, long ago, he had wanted to provide in his house um, accommodation for George Prasher's father, GP Senior, as we refer to him. And I think maybe they had bought a house together that was uh, an extended large <coughs> property and so on, and they had split the costs and what have you. But... At the end of that, one overlooked legal bill came in for £70. A lot of money in those days because we're going back decades. And GP Senior was away somewhere at the time, but he dutifully sent his 50% share of a, a cheque for £35 to Don Dole. That was fine. Don just had to find the £35 that he was due to add to it. He didn't have that money handy at the time. Before he went out to work that day, he knelt down as his custom before the Lord on his knees, committed the day to the Lord and committed this problem that he had. And he said, Lord, I've, I've opened the home to your servant and I'm asking you to share in this responsibility that I've undertaken on your behalf for your servant. I don't have the wherewithal. And he left it and went to work, had a day's work. Coming back home from work, he was giving somebody a lift because it was raining. And when this person got dropped off, uh, from uh, the lift home, Don noticed that his next door neighbour was somebody who belonged to the church. So he thought, oh, I'll pay him a visit when I'm here. So he got talking to this chap and the chap said to him, oh, Don, um, I remember some time ago you were going to sell your garden shed. Have you still got it? He says, yeah, I've got it. He says, well, I, I would like to buy it from you. I, I can give you £10 in advance. So he got £10. So he went home. And he was dealing with the mail that had come in that particular day. And he opened up a letter. And there was a letter from his brother George over in Aberkenvig. And it said, Dear Don, I feel the Lord has put it on my heart to send you this. He opened up and there was a £10 note. Now in the remainder of his post, for less dramatic reasons, there was another £10 in the post that night. So he had £30. It was time now to have his meal and get out to the prayer meeting. So he went out to the prayer meeting. When he got to the door of the hall at the prayer meeting, the brother on the door stopped him and said, Oh, uh, Don, he says, I never paid you for those photographs a long time ago. I'm really sorry I've taken so long. I'm due you two pounds, so here's the two pound. So he sat down in his seat ready for the start of the prayer meeting. And the Sunday school superintendent came up to him and said, Don, we never paid you according to the book for the Sunday school prizes that you contributed Here's the £2.50 that, sorry, we haven't paid you for it. So they went through the prayer meeting. And at the end of the prayer meeting, Don said, a brother, Dr. Mutimer, who rarely came to the prayer meeting, presumably because he had surgeries or what have you, turned up almost breathless at the end and ran in and came straight to Don and said, Don, the Lord has just asked me to give you this. And he gave him 50 pence or a 10 shilling note as it was in those days. So from six independent sources that day, following his prayer in the morning, he had exactly the £35 that he needed to pay the bill. There's the power of the prayer of a godly man serving the Lord and putting the Lord first in his life. Prayer works. Prayer's powerful. 
We should be encouraged and we should share experiences that are faith strengthening that give glory to the Lord. The prayer of his people is one of the means that God uses to bring things to pass in this world. We've seen that from Daniel. You know it's said, as we look further afield and the great fields of missionary work, it's said, and it's referenced there in the Moody Press, that for 40 years the sun never rose on China, but that it found Hudson Taylor on his knees for the salvation of souls. We're talking about praying for the salvation of souls, expressing a desire that is God's desire for souls to be saved. We don't know who it will be, but we can express that desire as we, in our own way, reach out with God's word to others. Again, looking beyond, I can remember a very dramatic thing, beyond the churches of God, but perhaps quite a few of us participated in our private prayers in seven years of prayer for the Soviet Union. It was a, a prayer campaign that was coordinated by Open Doors organization who specialize in ministry towards those Christians who serve the Lord in persecuted lands. Seven years of prayer for the Soviet Union. And wonderful things happened in answer to that seven-year prayer campaign. Glasnost came forward. An openness that included a greater measure of openness for the gospel. The number of prisoners in Soviet prisons for their faith shrank down dramatically. People who were specifically named were released from prison. And communism fell. And the Berlin Wall fell. Amazing answers that surely correlate with a, a seven-year prayer campaign that had those specific goals of praying that God's word would be magnified in those parts of the world that have <coughs> steeped themselves in atheism. Our God is a strong God. He's a mighty God. And he's a God who delights to answer prayer. And if we meet the conditions that are in his word that we've been exhorting one another to this afternoon, then we can expect great things from God in our prayer lives. Thanks for listening.